You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt, part of Kindling Kids Radio. Have you heard of Sensory Processing Disorder, or SPD? Do you know much about it? Most of us learn about these kinds of things if or when our own children or someone we know is diagnosed. Emily Saunderson is a Senior Occupational Therapist and Director of Kickstart Kids. She's here today with Professor Shelley Lane from the School of Health Science at Newcastle University. Together, they're going to help us understand SPD. Welcome to Kindling Conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Shelley, how common is sensory processing disorder? It depends on whether or not the child has another diagnosis. In kids with no other diagnosis, about 5% of kids will be identified as having a sensory processing disorder. It goes way up in kids with something like autism or attention deficit disorder. What is it exactly? It's a glitch in how the brain processes sensation and directs the body to respond. I've heard that there are, there are different types. So is it true that, um, I'm curious, so there's one's sensory processing disorder when they're seeking sensory gratification, I guess, and others when it's too much. Can you ever have a child with both? <laughs> Definitely. Wow. Um, and sometimes they can be sensory seeking in one system, so they might want a lot of movement, but be sensory, what we would call over-responsive to touch or sound. It also fluctuates to some extent across the course of a day. So if a child gets highly stressed, um, you can see different expressions of the disorder. You're listening to Kindling Conversation, and I'm speaking with Emily Saunderson, a Senior Occupational Therapist and Director of Kickstart Kids, and Professor Shelley Lane from the School of Health Science at Newcastle University. We're talking about sensory processing disorder, or SPD. Emily, sensory processing disorder can be both seeking lots of sensory gratification or avoiding it. How do you know as a parent that it might be something your child has? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question because, I mean, sometimes some children seem to present, I suppose, in a similar manner to other children do, but sometimes there's some really obvious differences. So the kinds of things that we look for are, I guess, challenges with everyday living type activities. So things like sleeping and feeding. So usually children that are over-responsive usually tend to be quite picky eaters or they'll have trouble with everyday grooming activities. So things like hair washing and hair brushing and brushing their teeth and, and not just normal difficulties that most kids have that they don't want to do it. It's like there's a really extreme response that goes along with it. If you were to talk about what a child looks like who is trying to be gratified in their senses. That sounds like so many hyperactive children that are just everywhere, you know, that they're wanting to play on the computer game, that they're running around and all that sort of stuff. But you're saying that it's when it's extreme. Yeah, and I guess it's quite noticeable. So usually the kids that are the sensory seekers are the kids who can't sit still, they can't stop fidgeting. They're the ones that the teachers tend to notice in the classroom. Um, They're, you know, kids that I suppose just can't seem to get that level of intensity of of sensation or be satiated with with sensation in everyday life um, and everyday situations. Would it be true to say that it's easier to pick a child who is avoidant of those sorts of things than it is 
to notice one that is seeking? I think they're both quite easily noticeable and I guess they're the two extremes that we do tend to pick up on the most. I mean, the, the kids that, that avoid sensation or, or can't cope with it that over-respond, they're typically the ones that have very extreme emotional responses that, that tend to go along with the behaviours. So, you know, as I said before, the kids who won't get their hair cut, the kids who perhaps have trouble with someone walking past them in a classroom, you know, a child might brush past them and they turn around and might hit them or have a really aggressive response. Um, similarly, I suppose, with children that are seeking, they just can't sit still. They just can't stop touching. They're constantly in pursuit of, of needing sensory input. So often children... Um, might be in a daycare setting. When they're your children at home, sometimes that's just how you know them and it's when they're around other kids that you start to notice differences. Is SPD something that early educators know about? Not enough, to put it briefly. I think that we haven't done nearly a good enough job of educating people. Um, I think it's becoming um, more recognised but we can still, I think, do a much better job of, of reframing what now gets called bad behavior into a need that the child is trying to fulfill. And so if they're sensory seeking, for instance, it might be because they need some movement input in order to help them deal with the sound in the environment or the visual input or the close touch that they get from other kids and to reframe the behavior as a sensory need as opposed to uh, what might be considered bad behavior, I think, is one of the things that we need to do more of. What are the implications if it's not treated? And I'm just thinking of children I went to school with that were really troublesome kids and just seen as bad kids. And I I don't know where they are now. It's primary school. They wouldn't have known about sensory processing disorder. Is that the right assumption? Is it relatively new? Uh, It's not new. It's based on the theory that was started in the late 60s. And I started teaching about what we call sensory integration disorder back in the early 80s. But it's still something that wasn't well recognized in the 80s. Um, It's not something that people grow out of. Um, But as uh, older kids and adults, we develop our own coping mechanisms. Sometimes those mechanisms are socially appropriate and sometimes they're not. I was thinking, and I could be wrong, but if a child is seeking sensory gratification, could that lead to, I mean, it just seems in my head a logical conclusion that when they're teenagers, they might take more risks, they might try drugs. Is that one of the possible outcomes? It's possible. We don't have any research that actually makes that link. But there is an interesting body of research that looks at risk-taking in adolescence and can link it to some extent to sensory, what we would call sensory seeking. It's a psychological body of research, and so they wouldn't have used that term. But there appears to be a link, but it's not well substantiated. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. We're talking about sensory processing disorder, and my guests today are Professor Shelley Lane from the School of Health Science at Newcastle University and Emily Saunderson, who is a senior occupational therapist and director of Kickstart Kids. Emily, your centre is about early intervention and supporting children who have different challenges and sensory processing disorder is one. I've heard of different sorts of strategies and a colleague here mentioned things like learning about their engine. Yeah. Using chew toys. Mm -hmm. I don't know what any of this means. Wobble (laughs) seats, crash mat, corner (laughs) swings. These sound like really tactile 
mm-hmm. solutions. Mm-hmm. Can you talk me through some of the strategies that you use for children to help them with these dis- processing disorders? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the the age of the child, but um, I guess for older children, we'd usually help them to um, use some tools and learn some tools to, to understand, I suppose, what their engines need and what their engine level is at particular points during the day. So if their engine is perhaps running high, that might mean that they need more sensation to try and calm themselves down. If their engine's running just right, then they're kind of in the zone for learning. And then if their engine is quite low, then they might need to use some strategies to kind of perk them themselves up again um, to be able to focus and I suppose what we're trying to help them to do is to be able to get into that optimal state for learning to happen um, whether that be in the classroom but that translates I guess um, differently for say a younger child a more preschool age child where perhaps the the parent or the carer might use more of those strategies so they might um, provide lots of opportunities at home for that child to crawl and climb and perhaps swing on a swing or um, to have lots of um, I suppose some nice hideout areas for them to calm down and, and chill out if, if the world gets a little bit too overloading for them. So I guess it really depends on the age of the child and, and what stage they're up to and, and I guess how easily they're able to understand what's going on for them in their body. How have you found parents respond to this diagnosis for their children? I mean, is it something that's hard to incorporate into daily life? Like it, it sounds mm. like it needs quite a bit of work to help children manage it. Yeah, it does. And, you know, we tend to spend a lot of time educating parents so that they really understand what the issue is, why it's an issue, how it's impacting on that child in their day-to-day life at home as well as in the other environments that they need to function in. And then I guess we also try to help them to, I guess, match and use strategies in their day-to-day life that fit in with their everyday routines. Because I think if you're asking parents to do things that really aren't a good fit for what they do typically and and their lifestyle, it's just not going to work for them. So yeah, it's always a bit of an ongoing discussion and dialogue with families to try and find something that's really a good fit for them and a good fit for their child. Shelley, when we talk about early intervention, at what age can you determine whether your child is suffering from this? There are some assessment tools that go down to about age three. Parents are a lot more insightful than our assessment tools, and they'll generally be able to identify that their kids look different from other kids, act different, respond different. Year one, year early in year Mm. two would you agree Emily Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, definitely so and and that's sometimes when they start uh, looking for some help on the other hand if they don't have their kids in a day program and they don't see a lot of other kids they may find themselves doing anything to make their child happy um, and not realize that they're turning themselves inside out in order to make that happen Shelley you mentioned before that it's um, an ongoing condition so it's it's not something that can be cured as such um that's a really interesting question i i don't think we cure it i think what we do is we give people tools Mm. to cope with the different ways their nervous system functions Um, i think we do make it different um, but I wouldn't use the word cure, would you? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd use the word cure. I think we can improve functioning um, quite a lot, and I think that we can make a really big difference to how well a child can participate yeah. at home in those everyday routines that they need to participate in, and I think in the classroom as well. And again, it depends on how complex the presentation right. is. You know, if it's more complex, then of course, you know, you, you can't expect necessarily that you're going to fix everything. And not that we're we're fixing things. I guess we're trying to improve functioning and trying to improve outcomes for that particular child. Yeah, and it's um, about quality of life. Absolutely. For the yeah. child as well as the family. Because one of the 
situations that I can imagine would be challenging for a child in a family with sensory processing disorder, whether they were sensory seeking or avoiding, is a shopping centre. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. do we avoid those? I mean, mm-hmm. is that something that you deal with, Emily, in trying to help them be yes. ready for that? <laughs> yes. I mean, for, for a little while, for some parents, they just don't go. But usually it's about helping them to understand, I guess, their child's nervous system and what their, their child's nervous system needs and whether they're ready to enter into a shopping centre. But also it's about giving them tools. So it might be, you know, for a sensory seeking child, it might be about maybe taking them to the park before they go to the shopping centre or giving them something really heavy to carry while they're at the shopping centre to give their nervous system the kind of input that it needs to stay calm so that they can participate in in a regular family shopping experience. Um, Sometimes it might be about educating the parents so that they can start to look for the triggers with that child if you've got more of an over-responsive child so that they can quickly withdraw the child to a quieter area to help them to manage and continue to participate in that experience. Or it might be about giving the child some deep touch pressure through cuddles or hugs or something similar before they actually go there so that their nervous system's a little bit more um, adaptable to the the onslaught of sensory input from the shopping centre. One thing I have heard of, I have friends who's one, one of my best friends actually, her son is on the spectrum but he also has sensory processing disorder and I remember um, posting something online about autism and I had another friend comment and they sort of showed two sides to a coin when it comes to this particular um, issue. Um, one of the, the friend whose son was on the spectrum, um, he was sick one night and he was throwing up and he couldn't cope with that. I mean, who can? But he, he was having extra troubles because he had so sensory processing disorder. And another friend was saying that she knew a child who had similar problems who, even when was, they were distressed, could not stand to be held mm. or cuddled. And... I know that parents, when they have children like this, learn strategies and work out ways to help their kids. What kind of advice do you have for parents who have children like this in their lives, but they're not with them every day? They don't know the triggers as well as the um, other parents, but they want those children to be part of the friendship circle outside of, you know, a, a special needs group or something like that. I mean, do you have any advice for parents who may not experience it every day but want to support these children? I'd probably need to give it a bit of thought, Siobhan. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is it is tricky. I, I think in terms of supporting kids with sensory differences, I, I think just being understanding and I suppose asking that particular parent what they're experiencing and I suppose how well they're dealing with it and, and how they can be of help. Because sometimes it is just having someone to listen. Sometimes it is a case of doing a lot of pre-planning, perhaps before they interact with that particular child and just having some understanding that if something does happen that it is just that child's nervous system they're not naughty they're not difficult it's just that they're perhaps not coping with the demands of that particular situation so I guess education and understanding is is always really helpful you might have a bit more to add. No I think that you've hit the nail on the head my the word that popped into my head was reframing Mm. so Mm -hmm. that the behavior was viewed not as being naughty not as acting out not as doing something to make the parent angry, but rather meeting some sort of an internal need. I can't say enough about how far education can go. And what if a parent has listened to this conversation and thinks, oh, maybe that's what's going on with my child? Where's the first place they should go? Um, I think always getting in touch with, I guess going to visit the paediatrician is often a a good first step, but not all paediatricians are aware of SPD. But I think also there's a lot of really good online resources, um, you know, where people can find out whether their 
child is presenting with some behaviours of SPD and then they can perhaps on the, some of those websites there's also clinicians that are available who are appropriately trained to be able to deal with it. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think just getting online and having a look at some of the symptoms and seeing if there's there's enough that sort of match up. I mean, sometimes we have parents that come into us and say, look, my child presents with this, this, this and this and we obviously take our own measures and, and have a good look and have a good chat to them to find out exactly what's going on and run some assessments and try and determine whether the child does present with SPD or not. But I think I think also just talking to other parents as well, you know, um, trying to find out whether that particular behaviour is, is normal or not. I mean, sometimes it might be one isolated behaviour, um, but we're often looking for a cluster of behaviours for us to be able to make a good diagnosis. Um, you know, most children will have something that they're not not particular not processing particularly well. They don't like their socks on them away. Yeah, you know, or they don't like, a lot of kids don't like tags in their clothing. I mean, that's not necessarily an indicator that your child has SPD. So I guess it's it's looking at the big picture of what's going on. Um, But I suppose if there's a number of concerns, you know, I think getting in touch with a good paediatrician is is a good first step to try and rule out whether it's you know something else that's contributing to it or whether it is just SPD. Of course, occupational therapists are usually the go-to people. Um, for SPD and and OTs that are trained trained in in sensory integration and um, yeah I, I think that's probably as much as I can think of but. yeah and I think there are a number of private practices cropping up um, mm. throughout Australia mm. the thing for the parents to do is make sure that whoever they're seeing has a background in treating SPD, um, a foundation in sensory integration. Do your research. And yes, your research. absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, to help you with that, if you do need to, we'll pop some links up on the website later this afternoon. Emily, Shelley, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us today. My Thanks pleasure. for having us. <laughs> that was Emily Saunderson, Senior Occupational Therapist and Director of Kickstart Kids, and Professor Shelley Lane from the School of Health Sciences at Newcastle University. And as I mentioned, we'll put all those links up on the website if you'd like further information. You've been listening to a Kindling Conversation podcast. We'd like to reach as many parents as possible and you can help us by giving us a review wherever you downloaded this episode. It means that more people can find us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.